0: Give our attention to the reading of God's holy word, His inerrant, infallible, inspired word. It's always true. It's always relevant in our lives. Here it is: First Peter 4, verse 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator, all doing good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, it's been read, and now may the words of my mouth and the thoughts, the reflections, the intentions on each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Direct us, Lord, to give our attention to this matter of our souls, in a world which is constantly distracting us from these eternal, weighty things. May we be focused and alert. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sidney Poitier, playing the character of Dr. John Prentiss, is engaged to Joanna Drayton, and the announcement of their engagement is the occasion for dinner with both of the families. But what the four parents of the two lovers don't realize is that Dr. Prentice is black and Miss Drayton is white. And because both sets of parents don't know and aren't expecting that the person that they're about to meet, the movie is appropriately called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Now it's a 1967 film when interracial marriage was still fairly controversial, and things have changed, I think, in many ways for significantly the better in these areas. But I wonder, have you ever had an unexpected guest for dinner? Now, Polly has because I'm a pastor. I'm regularly bringing home people. It's like, oh, we have guests for dinner. In fact, I just invited some of you to dinner this this morning over the announcements and she doesn't miss a beat anymore. She's like, here we go again. What about someone unexpected to stay the night? What about in life? Is there a circumstance that you least expect and don't think is right and don't think you deserve, but you're forced to deal with it much like you are forced to deal with that uncle coming from out of town and is showing up for a meal or for a week? So I'm borrowing this title, the question, guess who's coming to dinner, and maybe the title, The Unexpected Guest. That's what we'll call the sermon, The Unexpected Guest, but not in connection with interracial dating and marriage, as wonderful as that would be to speak on. But The Unexpected Guest this morning relates to trials and testing. If I were to ask you, guess who's coming to dinner, I wouldn't be asking about a person in this case, but a fictional character. We'll call him Mr. Fire Trial. And as it turns out, Mr. Firetrial isn't just staying for one meal. He's joining the family. He's renting a room. You're adopting him as part of your regular rhythm. He's gonna go with you for every meal for the rest of your new life in Christ, which began when you were born again from the futile empty ways that you inherited from your parents into a new and living hope and since that moment in time, Mr. Fire Trial has become a regular part of your life. Now, there's a twofold problem here for us because Mr. Fire Trial isn't just any ordinary troublemaker, he's an especially difficult troublemaker, hence, Fire Trial. I mean, I could be okay if just Mr. Trial came over for a snack or maybe a cup of coffee. But Mr. Fire Trial is joining me for dinner, breakfast, and lunch for the rest of my life, in this life. And I struggle with this for two reasons. One, trials are not part of the way that life is supposed to be. I know this in my my mind, in my heart. There seems to be a story that's just inside the fog layer. It's just out of my reach. The story is something about a, a perfect world where men and women, boys and girls, animals and humans, and all the elements existed in perfect harmony. There's something in my mind, uh, we'll call it an, an, a lingering echo of Eden, is what commentator Karen Jobes calls it, that tells me there's a sneaking suspicion, or worse, it's a, it's a sense of dread or a, a heartache of a world that once was and now no longer is. So asking me to expect and to somehow be okay with Mr. Fire Trial being a regular part of my life doesn't match that, that heart's desire that I have. And it isn't just a past world that is gone. There's something in my mind that says to me, this life can't be all there is. And so according to the skeptic and the agnostic and the atheist, I create a reality to satisfy this inner longing that I can't get rid of instead of submitting it to reason and science. And so I admit I'm weak in this regard. I have this this nagging suspicion that there's not enough time in this life to fulfill all the desires I have for this life. And so perhaps I'm made for another life that is yet to be. And so there's a a yearning for what's past and a yearning for what's future. And so I know that trials and trouble, and especially Mr. Fire trial, is not how life is supposed to go. But there's another reason that I struggle with trials. Not only are trials and trouble not the way that life's supposed to be, but we're all taught, and this is a lesson from culture, that suffering and trouble must be avoided at all costs. I mean, what's insurance for? It's to make sure I'm not inconvenienced, at least not very much. I can get a rental car, pay for my gas. A couple of, I get a Starbucks rider on top of that rental insurance policy, so I get extra Starbucks while my car is in the shop. Maybe, you know, a couple of massages thrown in. Let's make sure that that car accident is not in any way going to cause a ripple or an inconvenience in my life. Getting back to uh, Karen Job's commentary on 1 Peter, she says that we're supposed to deal with the problem so that we can get back to normal as quickly as possible. That's how we're wired, that's the message, that's that's what's in the Kool-Aid that we're drinking every single day. Now, as a church we finished about 16 weeks study on this topic of the victory of Christ in our sufferings. It was an apologetics class in our School of Discipleship, and we had between five and ten people come out. I'm very proud of our class and of the church, by the way, for supporting me and for supporting us in this study. And our textbook was Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and in the first several chapters of the book, he deals with the philosophical problem of suffering in the world's religions. It's fascinating. Now, if you're not into philosophy, you could probably skip that part, honestly, but I like that stuff. And he has a a brilliant insight about suffering in the West, and particularly in America. Keller notes that he calls it the secular view. There are only two things we can do when pain and suffering occur. The first is to manage and lessen the pain, to reduce the stress, strain, or trauma. And by the way, we're permitted to do that in any and all means possible. Any and all means possible to manage, reduce, eliminate, avoid, set aside any stress, strain and trauma. The second thing that we are taught to do by our culture is to look for the cause of the pain and eliminate it. Once is okay, twice no. So we are taught to manage it as best we can and if possible Find the source, and eliminate It's like a leak in the roof. Now, while other cultures, Keller says, see suffering more as an inevitable part of the fabric of life, in the West, and in America, and in suburban New Jersey, we think that our suffering can always be fixed. That's what we think. And so this cultural mindset makes it very difficult to relate what Peter's talking about here when he says Mr. Firetrial is coming for a meal and he's staying he quotes C.S. Lewis when he says that the modern approach to suffering is to find the right technique we could say a lot more on this I want the weight of it to settle in I, I hope it is You are not prepared to hear what the Bible has to say this morning. That's what I'm trying to say. Everything about your society, your upbringing, and your simple expectations go contrary to this text. There's another layer to it. I'll call it a third problem. No extra charge for this one. In the first century, Christianity was new. And so it automatically stood out from the Roman norms that was around them. In 21st century America, we still have the vestiges of sort of a – call it a low-grade Christian fever. Just enough to make people a little uncomfortable, but not to make you sick. And so there's kind of this bland, lukewarm Christian morality that sort of settles on everything around us. In fact, the whole discussion and debate about tolerance and acceptance and inclusivity is absolutely a a rip-off from the Christian Bible. It is an unprecedented concept in the history of the world prior to Christianity, and it has no logical grounds except in the Christian faith. And so we move in kind of a lukewarm, kind of watered-down, attenuated Christian soup. That's America. But we don't really remember anything about why we do it. It's just sort of what we do, so, you know. We stop at red lights most of the time, especially if there's, not, if there's a camera there. We more or less show respect to one another, especially at Wawa, you get the door for one another, absolutely every time. It's about the most Christian moment you'll have in southern New Jersey is at a Wawa, getting coffee. After you, no, after you, absolutely after you. I mean, he could be a Dallas Cowboys fan, and you're gonna get the door for him. So, you are not equipped in modern America to address trials in this way. So, let's see what the scripture has to teach. What does Peter want to teach his readers? And what does the Holy Spirit want to teach you, a modern reader, about Mr. Fire Trials' presence at your table? Now that you know who's coming to dinner, what should your reaction be? Peter recommends one simple response. Welcome trials with joy. Welcome trials with joy. The joy that's recommended is, in fact, quite vivid. If you look at verse 9, which I preached on two weeks ago, Peter says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This word hospitality is actually the same word, believe it or not, as do not be surprised. The word that the ESV translates surprise is the same word that Peter translates hospitality. Now what does this mean? Hospitality in Greek means to love the alien or the stranger. So surprise, because this is a weird, it doesn't translate well in English, Surprise is intended to capture the idea that we are not to regard trials, suffering, Mr. Fire Trial, as an alien or a stranger. He is an expected, normal part of your new life in Christ. You must not be surprised by the unexpected guest. Do not grumble when you entertain strangers in the church and do not grumble when the expected trial comes into your life. That's the thinking here. You are to welcome him as a member of the family. And this is the big idea this morning. Testing is a regular feature of your life as a Christian. How do you learn to welcome unexpected guests? You welcome them with joy. Let's look at three points then. First, the source of the joy in our text. Joy is actually mentioned three times in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. Three times, rejoice, rejoice, be glad. So what's the source of this joy? If it's so important in facing trials, where does it come from? Well, you have to see that it has this characteristic of being both past, present, and future. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It sort of acts as, a, as an umbrella over our whole lives. In fact, over the history of the world, there is this notion of joy because of what God is doing in the world. And so the source of the joy requires you to understand that God exists and that he is not not asleep. He is active and present in the world in spite of what you're experiencing in this trial. And it's a joy that results from a personal connection to your triune God. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of what? What? The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a statement about the Trinity. So, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, there's Jesus mentioned, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, the third person of the Trinity. So we have the second person of the Trinity. We've got the third person of the Trinity. And then God the Father is mentioned, the spirit of glory and of God, as in God the Father. So it's your personal connection through the Holy Spirit to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through that connection what theologians will call your union with Christ. This is the source of your joy. This is actually a reference to to Jesus himself because when it says the spirit rests upon you that is supposed to trigger something in your mind from somewhere else in the Bible where else do we read in the Bible that the spirit rests on someone in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry we see the triune God where the father says this is my beloved son I love him And then in the form of a dove, which is an accommodation to our limited human understanding, the Holy Spirit descends from somewhere in heaven and alights upon Jesus and rests upon him. And so Jesus, the one who John the Baptist said would would baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he himself is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 11. The Messiah would come and the spirit of wisdom and of of power and of insight would rest upon him in Isaiah 11. So where does your joy come from? It doesn't come from you trying to enjoy something. It comes because you are united by God's Holy Spirit to the being of God. And joy has become part of the equipment with which you you live your life. It's it's like another set of lungs is what it is. And your, your union with God through the Holy Spirit can no sooner be broken than God himself would cease to exist. This is your bond with all that is perfect, all that is wholesome, good, and true. But it's not just an abstract idea. It's not just a connection to what is good. It's a connection to the one Who is good? You see, when we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, we're talking about being personally united to the person of Jesus through the person of the Holy Spirit. It is a community of grace and blessing and joy. And your inability to experience that is because the fiery trial is taking your attention off of the abiding reality of your union with God. And Peter, being a good teacher, needs to remind you that the source of your joy is not your experience. It's what God has done for you in baptism, in salvation, in the new birth. He has given you his Holy Spirit. And some people who grow up religious all their life never heard about the Holy Spirit and said they go through their religious motions and they think going to church makes them acceptable to God or or giving money to the church or or doing good things or even following Jesus' example is the way that God wants me to live my life. That's not how he wants you to live your life. He wants you to live your life in union with him. And everything else is detail. So, bad habits, addictions, cussing, smoking, committing adultery, all of it is, is secondary to your union with Christ. And if what I'm saying is true, this radically gospel truth, if it's true, then it means that all the other secondary aspects of your life will be brought into harmony through the fiery trials that come and you're not going to be distracted because you know the source of your joy is God himself. You know when Jesus was raised from the dead his resurrection broke the power of sin in the universe. And so the Holy Spirit of God puts you in you, you tap into that power. And so if there's anything to be joyful about It's that I am no longer a servant of sin. And no man and no habit and no reality, no disappointment can have power over me because I am united to God through the Holy Spirit. I love this idea of the Spirit also because it it speaks to the temple. Now, quick Bible story. In the Old Testament, the Jews lived in the land of Israel and they were disobedient. Some of you have heard this story before. And when they were disobedient, God sent prophets to the land. You've heard this, right? And what did the prophets say? The prophets said, repent, repent, turn back to God. And the people didn't listen, and they didn't listen. And generation after generation, you have a few standout kings and a few standout individuals, women and men, that that do listen but at some point God reaches the end of his patience and the exile takes place now the exile simply means that the holy land was no longer suited for a holy people and so all throughout the ancient Near East the the people of God the people of the land are kicked out of the land because of their sin and in, in addition to that and this is the point The temple is destroyed and in Ezekiel we see the Spirit of God ascending from the temple and leaving the land. The Spirit is left. Do you know there is not one verse in the Bible that describes the Spirit as coming back until this verse. The Spirit's back. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days it will be raised, meaning himself. The Spirit rests upon Jesus, meaning the new temple. Jesus is the place, according to his conversation with the woman at the well. Jesus is the place of worship. He's the mountain on which we worship. Not in this land or in that land. God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so now, 1 Peter chapter 4, this takes us up to our teaching in 1 Peter this year. You are a living temple. You're living stones being built into the house of God. 1 Peter four nineteen. the house of God is in reference here. And so the Spirit is resting upon you because, because you have, your exile from God has ended. Jesus is raised from the dead. The back of sin has been broken, and you are free. That's the lesson here. God, help us to hear it. That's the source of joy. Welcoming Mr. Firetrial to dinner and then as a part of your regular everyday life and to do so with joy is not an easy task. You need to know the source of your joy and that is Christ. But Peter also wants to teach you to endure suffering. My second point, to know the goal of the joy for this, we need to briefly review Peter's first mentioning of fiery trials in chapter 1, verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The goal of joy is heaven and salvation, its holiness and the new world. We know this goal is going to be accomplished also because it is under God's will. Back in our text. Verse 14, If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 1 Peter 4.14 Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, skipping to verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to their faithful creator while doing good. What's the goal of joy? It's the will of God. You see, what's happening to you is not an accident. Your suffering isn't a result, as I mentioned earlier, of God being indifferent or ignorant of your circumstances. We know that the will of God is going to be accomplished Nothing but what is for your good, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time, will be kept from you. Here I was thinking of the goal of the joy in Paul's beautiful passage. I'm not going to take time to read it. When he shares his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, he says that he is, that he's counting everything as rubbish, that you might gain Christ. And he goes on to say he, the goal of, of his life is, is, the res, is the resurrection. And I probably should have looked it up because now I'm not quoting it correctly, but bear with me. The fellowship of his sufferings is where he's headed. And he says, if perhaps I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's Philippians 3, 8 through 11. So the goal of joy for Paul is conformity to Christ, which includes the fellowship of his sufferings and the resurrection of the dead. And you see, it's, it's the presence of a very large goal that helps us to get through very small trials. And the larger the goal, the, the bigger the prize, the easier it is to put up with the things that you deal with or that you brought on yourself in this short life. Now, the judgment of God is mentioned here, which ties into God's will. You see, it isn't just that God is aware of what's happening, and he's not ignorant of what's happening. It's God is doing something in what's happening. This phrase, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, that's actually worth an entire message in and of itself. In the culture wars, the church is the first violator. another Sunday but that's at least in part what this means the first problem in the culture wars is the church it's time for judgment to begin in the church that's what that means but when it comes to our fiery trials the fiery trial you're experiencing is God judging you not as to your salvation because you're, you're united to God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That was my first substantial point. So what is the judgment of God on the church? Sanctification, discipline, purification, humbling. We're going to see in 1 Peter 5 the motto of every Christian life, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up at the proper time. God is judging his church That's his will. And so he sends Mr. Fire Trial for dinner to each one of your homes because he loves you and he is unwilling to leave you where you're at. But he is jealous with the holy jealousy of a father. The perfect, pure love of a father. He desires what's best for you. You want to say, I want to to discover my best self. That's my goal in life, is to be the best version of myself. I've heard this so many times. The best version of yourself is in the hand of God, and it requires the judgment of God for you to attain it. And it's time. It's time for judgment to begin. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is, as C.S. Lewis puts in his book, The Great Divorce, this, this life is as much of hell as the believer will ever experience. And it's as much of heaven as the unbeliever will ever experience. I believe in purgatory. This is going to shock some of you who are Reformed Presbyterians. Just in this life, now, today, while you're alive. Purgatory is a living hell. It's a purification of this life by the fiery trials that God sends in our lives to purify us in this one life in which we have. The Puritans would say, the trials of this life are tuning our lips that we might sing in key in the heavenly choir. That's the goal of joy. So we're welcoming the unexpected guest of Mr. Fire Trial, welcoming him with joy. This is the proper response to suffering and trouble. We've seen the source of joy, which is our union with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit the goal of joy which is your good and the glory of God and ultimate perfection in heaven what should your response what should your response be unconditional surrender of everything in your life to God that's your response we, I think we sang it Nothing in my hands I bring. Empty-handed. Unconditional. No qualifications. Uh, Elder Will Bouse read it in his prayer, in the scripture before his prayer. Did you catch it in Isaiah? Isaiah has an encounter with Almighty God. In that encounter, Isaiah falls on his face. And at the end of that passage, he says, Here am I, Lord, send me. Unconditional blank check. You write the amount. Destination is yours to determine. There isn't a single thing in my life that isn't up for review in this surrender of our lives to Christ. You say, Well, God's sovereign, He'll take care of it. That's correct. And he just has, because he sent you a preacher who is speaking on behalf of Jesus, saying, I want you to unconditionally surrender your life and the things that you're holding on to, the sins that you're holding on to, your are grumbling about Mr. Fire Trial, your refusal to stand out for your faith, all of these things are an obstacle to the advance of God's purposes in your life and in the world. Stop. You need to surrender your life to him. No more excuses. commentator Mark Dubis puts it this way in his book on this he wrote an entire book on these 19 verses of 1st Peter. I'm a you guys know I'm a theological nerd so that really gets me excited. 400 pages on 19 verses. But here's what he says, it's a brilliant book. Here's what he says in response to the sober reality of 1 Peter 4:18, which I'm going to read for you in a moment. 1 Peter 4:19 offers a concluding exhortation. We must entrust ourselves to God, who is our only hope for survival. Let me make this personal. You must entrust yourself to God. He is your only hope for survival of the fiery trials. Now, look at verse 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, he's quoting the Old Testament here. I'm looking at my footnote, which doesn't tell me. He's quoting the Old Testament, and the the comment is, that the, that the righteous is barely saved. Think of it as uh, getting out of a burning house with the smell of smoke on you. And with the hairs on your backside slightly singed. Escaping by the skin of your teeth, as the saying goes. It's the eye of a needle, remember? And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and someone from suburban New Jersey to enter the kingdom of God. That's my amplified version of that story. It is hard to be saved. And while we want to emphasize in our beautiful reformed heritage that once saved, always saved, there is also the important footnote to that. If saved, always saved. Because you might think you're saved and you're not and presumption is a very real sin in the Western Christian Church. I meet people every day who say they're Christians. Every single day, I'm a Christian. I think the latest poll is 95% of America is Christian. Well, we have a lot of empty seats for that statistic to be true. Well, maybe it's me, but imagine a more handsome, more eloquent preacher where are all the Christians? Are you a Christian? That's what this is asking you to, to qualify or to clarify in my mind. You shouldn't be afraid of asking these questions. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, we have nothing to fear of asking the question Am I saved? Am I a born again believer? Here it says that the righteous are barely saved. So you're born into a Christian home, you receive this covenant sign of baptism. You need to ask yourself, am I a Christian? You say, but what about the saving efficacy of the sign and seal of the covenant? Absolutely. The righteous are barely saved. Most people I meet in New Jersey are baptized. Most of them. Most of them don't go to church. Most of them don't read their Bible. Most of them don't know the gospel, which is Jesus died for my sins. He shed his precious blood to break the back of the devil in my life. That's the gospel. And so unconditionally surrendering ourselves is the only fitting response when you know that's the truth. You see, it's hedging of your bets and creating a side insurance policies on the side you know just in case God doesn't work out in my selection of a future spouse I'm going to have a backup plan where I meet someone that's highly educated and well resourced and so we create this these unholy pathways of conditional surrender I'm a partial Christian an almost Christian and maybe Christian a sunshine happy times Christian but when Mr. Fire Trial shows up that's it I'm done And we see it as your elders. We see it in your lives. We see you struggling with it. We see it in one another's lives. We see it in this church. It is hard to walk the life of a follower of Jesus in this day and age. This idea of entrusting your soul is so important. Society does not want you to think about your soul your, your Android phone, is designed to help you not think about your soul. Instagram's mission statement is help her not to think about her soul for 20 minutes. I read it. It's authored by Mark Zuckerberg himself. The political ping-pong on your news feed is designed to help you ignore your soul for about a half an hour or an hour and a half or all day as you get sucked into the blogosphere about the latest developments in the presidential election what God is saying is entrust your soul unconditionally to your faithful creator and receive the fiery trials with joy that's what God is saying Dubas says this, from one perspective, our sufferings are unjust. But looking to Christ, we know that Jesus' sufferings had a purpose. 1 Peter 2.23, do you know who else entrusted his soul to his faithful creator? Jesus did. So Peter says that Jesus entrusted his soul to his Father, and then he says, so you can do it too. Jesus did it for you, so now all you need to do is trust him. In my introduction, I mentioned the movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and the notion of the unexpected guest, that's what I've called my sermon today. The unexpected guest is Mr. Firetrial. I love if some of you are artists, maybe you can draw me a cartoon picture of Mr. Fire Trial what this guy looks like when he's standing on your doorstep. I personally am scared to death of Mr. Fire Trial. Everything that I said you do, the reason I know you do it is because I do it. I am personally overwhelmed at the notion of welcoming fiery trials with joy for the rest of my life. I am overwhelmed by that. I'm I feel helpless. But that's not the only one who's at the door. The end of the story is that it turns out Mr. Fire Trial is a little pet. And the one who shows up at the door is Jesus. And Jesus brings Mr. Fire Trial with him because Jesus has subdued him. And Jesus pets Mr. Fire Trial and he doesn't bite him because Jesus has conquered death hell, the devil, and sin, and everything else that God hates in the world and that is designed to destroy you. He is the champion over those things. And so when you receive Mr. Fire Trial, the little pet for dinner, more importantly, you're receiving Christ. You do not fear the trials because Christ is with you in the trials, having triumphed over the trials for you and in your place. So we read, Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for teachers who tell us what we know but have forgotten or do our best to ignore. We thank you, Lord, that we are not so sophisticated that we don't need reminding of the basics. We've been bought by the blood of Christ and set on a path, and you will never leave us And Though it is beset with many fiery trials, they are designed for our good and your glory. So I pray particularly now for Mercy Hill Church. I pray that we would unconditionally surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. I thank you that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising its shame and was seated at the right hand of God and we are to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we would not lose heart and as we look to Jesus may our witness shine and sparkle like the sun may you clean the lenses of our testimony fogged as they are by our doubt and by our own defects and deficiencies and when people see us May they see that the surpassing greatness of the treasure is not from us, but from God, because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So may God, you be glorified in this church, in fact, in all Christian churches throughout Gloucester County and New Jersey and around the world, as we welcome the fiery, purifying trials with joy until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillingj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.